Bioegg World is brought to you by headscape.co.uk in association with getsignoff.com and the website owner's manual. On this week's show, Paul talks to Joe Stump from Dig about scalable websites. We review the best apps for web designers and investigate services for sending bulk emails. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? Hi, Paul. How are you? Hello, Paul. Hi, Paul. Hi, Paul and Marcus. Hello, and welcome first ever BoeingWorld.com podcast. Boeing World. Hello and welcome to the 100th episode of BoeingWorld.com. Hello and welcome to the 144th episode BoagWorld.com, the podcast for those involved in designing, developing and running websites on a daily basis. My name is Paul Boag. And my name is Marcus Lillington. And we're still in the echoey room. Echo. I could make it even more echoey. Do you know what? Making it less echoey would be very hard. Do you know, somebody emailed me to say, it's disgraceful, the quality of your audio sucked and uh, you need to go in a smaller room. I mean, we're in the smallest room in the building. We explained on the podcast that... It was echoing because we haven't got any blinds up. The blind man is outside the room now. If yeah. you dare write, do you know, and complain about this game, the blind man arrived driving a car. I know that's quite scary. Blind man driving a car. So people are going to complain even more because you can hear him going in the background the whole way through the podcast. So there we go. Deal with it. And we've got no internet connection as well. Well, no, actually, we sorted out our internet connection, mm. and then Ustream um, decided not to play, so we couldn't do a live show this week. So that sucks too. Apologies for those that were looking forward to that because there's nothing more exciting on a Wednesday morning <laughs> than looking at me and Marcus. Yes, exactly. The highlight of everybody's week. So how are you? Did you have a nice time in wherever you went? Yeah, it was fantastic. You're such a liar. Brilliant. You're only saying that because a client might be listening. It was probably the best two days of my life. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing stakeholder meetings, aren't you? No, no, no. They're quite exciting in comparison. I was doing card sorting. Oh, card sorting, yeah. Oh, no, that is tedious, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Especially card, card sorting with students who don't really want to be doing it. Yes. You need to be careful because quite a lot of students <laughs> listen to this show. Well, no. If, if, when I was a student, I wouldn't have wanted to do it either. No, there are better things you can do. Did, I mean, they, did I, they get any money out of it? No. No one got Ooh, any money. Nobody got any It was all a case of like, you know... Um, do this for the good of whatever. Oh, well, then you're doomed, aren't you, basically? Well, actually, I think, I think we've got some pretty good results. <laughs> but basically, you re- for the first few sessions, you, you realise, you give you a little spiel at the start, like, this is why we're doing this, and we've been, you know, we're trying to get the Kill, which is Kill University website we're working on, um, and we're trying to make it more usable, blah, 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 and we want your inputs to get yeah. some sort of, you know, grassroots input and all this kind of stuff. And then you realise that basically you shut up for half an hour. Yeah. And for the first few, I'm sat watching them, you know, staring at what they're doing, thinking, this is so boring. But then after a while, I realised, actually, I could get on and do some work. So I started writing that article. Really? You were <laughs> yeah. doing that actually in the card sorting session? Yeah, yeah. Because that is there's nothing to do. I mean, they might ask you the odd question, but generally speaking, people get their head down and just get on with it. Yeah. But, but don't you mind? I mean, whenever I do it, I ask questions about why they're doing it the way they're doing it. No, because it confuses them, and then you're leading them as well. Uh, okay. You lead them, because if you ask a question, you're thinking, why did they do that? And then you say why they do it, and then they go, uh, I don't know, should I have done it like that? Uh, okay. Just let them get on with it. Ah, interesting. Important. So there we go, and uh, there's, a, there's a good piece of advice there for people doing cold sorting. And also the other piece of advice is pay them. If, you, if you're yeah, getting people yeah. to do usability testing or card sorting or anything like that, you, know, you need to recognise people's time is valuable. And so yeah. it's worth paying. You know, it can be a token amount of hell. It can even be a kind of, you know, a, here's a hamper or a, a hamper. Free, well, God, no, yeah, I'd do it. I mean, maybe a packet hamper maybe is a bit over the top. But you know what I mean? Some kind of, doesn't need to be whole cold card cash. Called card cash? Card, card cash. Yeah, there we go. Cash cards. So even in our introductions now, we're informative and useful. So well, what's the news going to be like? I was going to say, I mean, that's a first, isn't it? Yeah. And the news now is going to be out of this world. So let's move on to it. Okay, so let's talk about the news. And we've got um, some interesting ones this week. The first one will be excellent for those of you who are freelancers out there, especially those maybe starting off in your freelancing career, because it answers the number one question 
that I think probably all freelancers have, and indeed even all agencies, which is how much can we get away with charging? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's important, isn't it, really? It's it's one of the fundamentals of running your own business is knowing how much you can charge. Um, And yet, strangely, it's never something that's taught at college. You know, you you go on it, you know, you think on a web design course, probably a large proportion of people will go self-employed after that, and yet they don't teach basic business skills. Just gets up my nose. Anyway, yeah. um, perhaps they probably but they probably don't teach it to be fair because it's a damn hard question to answer. How would you answer somebody that question? Two pound fifty. Well, there you go. You're going to see that. <laughs> that proves our point, which is why we've avoided ever talking about it on the show, isn't it? Really? We have. I have covered it. I talked about. Um, there's a report that comes out every year. Yes, and I kind of covered what what the report said about different rates for different yeah, jobs and all that kind of you thing. You did. But it's actually. quite... It, it, oh, I don't know. What's the name of the report? Can you remember? No. <laughs> the Alista Part. Alista Part does a report, but that's not really a freelancer's. Isn't it uh, e-consultancy? Is that it? It could be. Um, yeah, I think it might be. But the point is with this, it's, it's, it's a funny one. It's kind of like, this is why you should work within an agency. And why you should get a bit of an experience because then you can realise because it's not cut and dried. No, some you know uh, it might. It's not to, nothing to do with size. Well, it has might have something to do with size. It might have something to do with your location. But equally, you might be you might find a really cheap agency in the middle of London mm. um, who employ hundreds of people, mm. and yet one next door that employs three people charges you know the highest rates for web design anywhere. So it's it's about reputation. Right. Um, and supply and demand as well. Whether you specialise yeah. in something, I think, is a big thing. You can also, and there's also an argument that if you make yourself really expensive, that makes you desirable. Yeah. Well, so. it's interesting. So anyway, the, 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 obviously the reason I'm talking about this is that there's some news-related thing here, and, and that's that somebody's published an article called Six Things to Consider When Setting Your Freelance Rate. Yeah. Um, and although the article doesn't give a magic number at the end of it, unsurprisingly, it does provide six kind of valuable insights that should inform your design, uh, decision. <coughs> and these include um, the fact that young freelancers and recent graduates almost always ask too little for their skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and that partly that's because um, they don't really realize that they're offering something of value that their clients can't do themselves. Do you know? I, 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 well, can you remember the first time you ever got like a proper wage packet? Yeah, and it's like, wow, so much money. Yeah, and then sort of like a month later, it's like, well, I've spent it all. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and oh, it's a rubbish wage packet. Yeah. So I think there's a little bit of that. There is a little bit of that. He also talks in the article about um, you know your rates uh, influence your perceived value. So the more you charge. Yeah. the better people think you are. Exactly, yeah. Um, which is is a completely back-to-front and stupid methodology, but worked quite well for us because we massively overcharge and, and seem to get away with it and everybody thinks we're really No, clever. we don't massively overcharge. No, we don't. We, we came out very average. We came out as absolutely smack in the middle. Mm. So, which was which very was, interesting. Which was encouraging, I have to say. It was. Going into these hard times. Do we, are we willing to tell people what we charge? No. Okay, I just wanted. I don't know whether we talked about that on the show or not. No, we don't talk about that. Well, that's fair enough. We got because it might. The reason is because it might change. Well, it will change. Oh yeah, so that's you know, very true. You said on the show one forty. Yes, you know, yes, good point. Well, actually, no. Um, yeah. Also, the other thing that um, he talks about is. Um, you don't get to keep it all, which I think, I, this sounds a stupid thing, but it, it is something that um, recent graduates or uh, new freelancers do think. They go, okay, well, I want to earn, I don't know, 40 grand a year or whatever figure they pluck out of the air, right? So you take that and you divide that by, you know, um, 365 days, you know, 50, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Eight hours a day, Sorry, I wasn't helping there. I've gone into a bit of a day. Yeah. Table. But you know what I mean? When you kind of, you just divide it up and go, oh, well, that means I need to charge £20 an hour or $20 yeah. an hour. And of course, it doesn't work like that, you know, in reality, because there's a lot of other factors mm-hmm. that are in, um, involved. Overheads. Yes. Um, things like that. And the fact that you only work 200 days a year, probably. And yeah. And then you, you probably don't even do that. Yeah. And are you going to be productive for seven and a half hours a day and that kind of thing? No it's, chance. You know, and, and there's, yeah, anyway, there's things like marketing costs as well and mm. all of that kind of... I'd say of all the points, um, that was the one that, that kind of resonated with, with me the most, that, you know, your billable hours 
are just a fraction because you need to take into think, account things like sales and marketing and overheads. And actually, in the article, he links to a superb rates calculator, which kind of helps you work out your chargeable rate mm. based on the various costs that you have and how much you want to earn and that kind of thing. So that's in the show notes, which is at boagwell.com forward slash podcast forward slash 144. If I was a freelancer, <laughs> I would go to one of the many, many, many employment agencies mm-hmm. you know, that sell IT type services. Yeah. And say, I'd like to go on your books, please. Yeah. And they'll say to you, what's your rate? And you'll say, oh, I'm not really sure. What do they normally go out as? Yeah. And they'll tell you. Yeah. That's a lot easier than agency rates. Yeah. Freelancer rates. That's a good idea, actually. Um, and there, there are various other points. He brings up that I cover in the show notes as well. But read the article. It's a good, good article. Okay, next up. Um, I think kind of really, this is a bit cheating because normally new, each news story consists of one article while this one consists of about 20. There seems to be a kind of a, a plethora of um, uh, accessibility posts in the last few weeks. And I think it's probably because of the imminent arrival of WCAG 2 and a kind of resurgence in the intra- of interest in, in accessibility as a result. So I thought I'd show you just a, a, a few of the articles that have been written about accessibility recently. First one is about writing good alt text. It's a bit of a, it's quite a simple post um, and by no means covers everything to do with alt attributes, but it does suggest two rules of thumbs when it comes thumb thumbs? Two rules of thumb. Of thumb, yes. When it comes to writing alt text. Two rule of thumbs is quite nice though. It does sound more thummy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, carry on. Um, first is um, that imagine that if you were going to describe a document to somebody or an image to somebody over the phone, um, you know, would you men- you know, if you're describing a document, would you bother mentioning the image in it? You know, is the image intrinsic to the content? In other words, um, if 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 it you would mention the image, then you probably need to provide some alternative text for that image because it mm. is kind of important rather than just a pretty graphic filler. Um, second, does the alternative text of any image in the document make sense if you turn off the display of images in your web browser? It's simple advice, but it's kind of well worth um, remembering and checking out that little post. Next one is, is, for, is a series of articles, actually, a series of three in-depth articles on the subject of dyslexia. And it asks what dyslexia is and how, as web designers, we can go about improving our sites to accommodate the needs of dyslexic users. Um, it's really quite interesting stuff. And part one really defines what accessibility, sorry, what um, dys- dyslexia is. Dyslexia. Dyslexia, yeah. <laughs> um, which obviously I suffer from. Um, and it's actually a lot more than you think it is at first sight. Part two uh, comes is an interesting discussion of some of the conflicting requirements between users who have um, visual impairments and those that have dyslexia. So, for example, um, with visual impairments, one of the guidelines is to produce high contrast, isn't it? You know, yeah. so it's easy to read. So black text on a white background, but actually that can cause a problem for some people with dyslexia. Believe it or not, it causes text almost visually jump for them. So it's quite hard to concentrate on it, on it, and view it. And actually, a more subtle difference between foreground and background colors better for them. So interesting. Didn't know that. And then the third part um, suggests some specific things that you can do to improve the legibility of your design for dyslexic users. So, interesting series of articles. Okay. Next one is an extensive post um, aimed at providing web developers um, and others with practical advice about the preparation of accessible HTML forms. It compares WCAG 1 accessibility requirements relating to forms with those contained in WCAG 2. It's important stuff, but it's not a five-minute read because it really is very thorough and goes into a lot of depth. So check that one out if you have a few days to spare. No, that's an exaggeration. <laughs> it's not that long, but you get the idea. And then finally, I wanted to mention an RNIB um, article that explains how legend, which is the legend tag... Um, can do more harm than good if not if it's not concise and relevant. Now this is really interesting. The reason the legend tag causes a problem. So legend tag is like a title on a field set. So if you select a group of fields in a form, group them together in a field set, give it a title. That title is the legend. Right. The reason it's it's um, it can be harmful is because every time it reads out the field label. It reads out the title first, the, mm. the legend. So if the legend was um, uh, personal information, 
and then it, it was you filled to a name, you know, yeah. address, etc. It would go personal information, name, personal information, address, personal information, phone number, and that you know, as you can imagine, can be really annoying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And actually, could not in some situations not make sense if you don't label your legends properly and stuff. So, yes, true. Quite an interesting little article and something again that I didn't know about. So there you go. That's what's going on in the world of accessibility at the moment. But I want to also talk about. A word I'm using a lot recently, which is simplicity. I seem to be using this all the time with our clients at the moment, and it's obviously turned into my my latest hobby horse. Um, so many website owners are constantly wanting to add features and content to their site. Um, however, in reality, um, we should be removing, not adding, to our already bloated websites. This is particularly true for large institutions, although I have to say it happens with smaller sites as well. Headscape really good example of this our own mm. website I mean our own website was substantial wasn't it there was a lot of copy on there yeah but when, no one ever read yeah when we actually sat down and thought about well what is it that users want to know before they will actually pick up the phone and talk to you there's actually quite limited information so we ended up kind of just dumping huge amounts of content from our site and what mm. we've got now a single page pretty much is cheating a little bit because it pulls content in via Ajax and stuff mm. but it, it's considerably smaller than it was yeah I mean and that in my opinion is, is what simplicity is all about so Jerry McGovern sums it, summed it up perfectly this week in a post that he wrote entitled The Business Case for Deleting Content and he wrote the more you delete the more you simplify the more you simplify the more you increase the chance of your customers succeeding on your website and we may think we cannot delete content because somebody might want it or because we believe it'll help search engine rankings, which is the other thing. If we've got lots of content, then, you know, it's good for rankings. However, bloated sites bring complexity, and with complexity comes con- uh, confusion. And the more content on your site, the less chance the user will ever be able to find the content that they need. Mm. So, good advice from Jerry. And he's agreeing with me, which is why I think which it's good advice. good advice. Exactly. Absolutely. Anybody that agrees with me, give good advice. So let's finish today with a great post for those um, who need help with HTML code. So whether you're a student learning HTML or a designer who, let's face it, is probably more comfortable in Photoshop than they are in something like Coda, um, then this is going to be a useful article. And the post provides 12 excellent tips for keeping your code clean. So it includes things like use a strict um, doc type, set the characters um, set and encode those characters, indent your code, keep your CSS and JavaScript external, nest your tags properly, eliminate unnecessary divs, blah, 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 leave typography to the CSS, validate IDs, blah, 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 blah. So I won't read them all because it's getting You boring. nearly did. I nearly did, but I lost heart halfway through. Yeah. <laughs> um, the yeah, will to live. Exactly. The article basically explores those um, points in a lot of depth and clearly communicates um, current best practice, I guess, in coding HTML. So it's worth a read, even if it's only as a reminder. So there you go. That's the news for today. Cool. And we have an interview coming up next. An interview with the almighty and illustrious Joe Stump from dig.com. And you should say thanks go to Nathan O'Hanlon for transcribing the interview. Okay, so joining me today is Joe Stump from Dig. Good to have you on the show, Joe. Oh, good to be here. Have we had you on the show before? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Oh, well, uh, we, we, we need to rectify that then, which is good. It's good to have you on. Now, um, I have to say, this interview was arranged by Ryan, who is our producer, and he's a developer, and I'm a designer, and he suggested that we got you on the show, not that I wouldn't like you on the show, obviously, but got you on the show to talk about scaling websites. Now, I'm going to be out of my depth very quickly here, so you have to be very gentle with me, Joe. Is that okay? Sure. So, in fact, it, it was so bad, as I sat down to write questions, I thought, I don't know what I'm doing here. So I went and talked to some of the developers at Headscape, and I've asked some of the Boag World listeners, and so we've got a little selection of questions for you that, that hopefully we can learn a little bit um, about uh, how you go about doing things at Dig. Let's start off. Can you tell me, uh, what, what's your job title? What is it that you do at Dig? Oh, I have, a, I have a really fancy job title. It doesn't mean a lot of anything, but uh, my official job title is Lead Architect, okay. and... Um, I think basically what best describes that is uh, I manage the the technical implementation on the code side. 
Okay. Uh, so Dig's, Dig's broken up into a lot of different uh, arenas on the tech side. We've got um, R&D, which is headed up by Anton Kast. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have operations, which is headed up by Scott Baker. Or, and then under that are the people that I work with uh, probably most closely in implementing um, solutions for Dig. Ron Gordetsky is our lead systems engineer. Uh, Tim Ellis, also known as Timeless, is our, our chief DB wonk. And then uh, Mike Newton is our is our lead uh, network guy. So uh, I think us four kind of we steer the, the technical implementation while the managers uh, they they manage and and handle the strategy and partners and stuff like that. Okay, you managed to say the word manager with real disdain there. <laughs> oh no no, actually uh, I, I have a, a great manager, um, John Quinn. Uh, he's our VP of engineering. He's by far and away uh, the best direct manager i've probably ever worked with oh that's good yeah he's really good okay so so let's kind of go back in time a little bit and and start by well when was the when was the point where you you realized that you were going to start having scaling issues with dig you know when did you start thinking about the whole subject of scaling um well dig was dig was pretty big when i came on board um yeah so dig was already at about i think about 10 to 12 million uniques when I joined on. Um, and I think we just cleared 35 million last month. Uh, so, so, so scaling was, was, uh, obviously an issue The the big difference is, is that I I think sites generally go through a few different levels of scaling where like the first one's like, I'm just going to throw it on a, a virtual server or an Amazon, you know, server. And, you know, you basically you're just seeing if things are going to stick to the wall Mm -hmm. and, and then they do. Uh, so the first thing you normally do is you start breaking services off onto separate boxes. That's generally the first thing you do. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to put my DB on one box and my web server on another box and maybe memcache on, on each of them. And then you hit um, you hit read saturation on that one DB server. So then you go through the what's kind of the next level of scaling, which is where Dig was when I started, where you start dangling a whole bunch of read slaves off of your DB master. So... Um, and for those of you that aren't familiar with the master-slave terms, it's uh, you send all of your rights to one database server, and then that disseminates those rights to a whole bunch of uh, slaves. Okay. Uh, and then and then you send all your read traffic to those slaves. Um, so that's where Dig was when I started, and we had spread HTTP traffic across a whole bunch of web servers, read traffic across a bunch of um, slaves, and then we had one master. Uh, and we're now kind of going through what, what I think is the third phase where you hit write saturation on your master, um, which is a bigger problem because then you need to start sending some write traffic to some masters. And, and we're actually going with a, a, a strategy that's common uh, with Facebook and Flickr and those guys. It's uh, called horizontal partitioning, okay. where you take and you put some of your records on one server and then some of the other records on another. So it's like you could say... Uh, for users, for instance, um, all users whose names start with A through J live on this database server, and then K through Z live on this other database server. So we're we're in the middle of implementing uh, the first the first uh, uh, swipe at that. Um, so we'll be moving pretty aggressively into where everything will be federated and partitioned across a whole bunch of servers. Okay, one of the questions that kind of came up, which perhaps relates to that, is, is once you kind of start spreading things across multiple servers uh, you know how do you handle things like user sessions you know that have obviously got to be persistent mm-hmm. so there's a there's a, a couple different ways to handle that um i'd say most people these days are are handling it um there's two ways probably that you could do it easily one of them is is if you have session what they call session affinity mm-hmm. on your load balancer so the load balancer will say Oh well, this person. Uh, last time I sent them, last time I had them here, they went to server A, so I'm going to send them back to server A. So the session always lives on one box. That's one way to do it. Um, we don't do that here. We we uh, we do a we have a custom session handler in PHP that stores the session in memcache, um, and that allows you. Sorry, can you just clarify what memcache is for idiots like me that don't know? Sure, sure. Memcache is a distributed um, cache system that is actually. Uh, basically, what it allows you to do is expose uh, a machine's RAM over the network, okay. and uh, and cache stuff into other machines' RAMs across or RAM across the network. Uh, wow. 
Yeah, it's insanely fast. It was a, developed by Danga for LiveJournal back in the day and Brexfitch. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's heavily used by anybody that's scaling with LAMP, and even a lot of people that aren't, are, they all use Memcache. Right. Oh, so, so yeah, we store all of our, all of our session data in, in Memcache. So PHP creates a unique session ID, and we just, we just stuff session data into that key um, in Memcache. So, and then you know, we can distribute that across, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know, we have 50 or 60 Memcache servers, something like that. So, uh, how many servers do you guys have? I mean, it must be a staggering number by now. Um, it's kind of funny. Uh, every time I ask Ron that, he's always kind of like, uh, I don't know. Because <laughs> uh, because we really can't, I mean, I couldn't give you a specific number because on any given day, uh, we'll pull or push into production, uh, you know, I don't know, a dozen servers. So, um, hundreds. There's definitely hundreds in production, so... I mean, with that many servers, and also you talking about, you know, um, taking servers on and offline and that kind of thing. I mean, making updates to the site when, you know, when Daniel comes up with some stupid idea um, of a new feature that he wants to apply on the site, and you've gone through the process of coding it and making it work, you've then got to push it live. Mm-hmm. How does that work? How do you go about pushing something like that live when, it, when there's so many servers involved? Uh, so we have... Um Ron, Ron Gordetsky, he's, again, our lead systems engineer guy. We have a script that, that so us developers have a bunch of M4 make files that uh, you, when you check the code out, you run basically make install. Yeah. And it, it the, for lack of a better word, it builds or compiles the website into, okay. like, a cohesive package. Um, and then... Ron pushes that to each server. I think he's still doing it by rsync, but I know we're migrating over to Puppet, um, so that it may happen via Puppet soon. The production side of things is um, something that is handled completely by operations. So I couldn't I couldn't tell you like specifically how it happens, but generally uh, we make a tag of the website and we tell Ron, "Hey, we need you to push nine point four point fifteen or whatever," and and he does a he does a checkout, he builds it, and then pushes it to all of the different servers. So does that, I mean, do you, have you ever, do you actually have to take a, the site offline to make those updates? How do, you, how do you minimize the kind of downtime that's involved in that kind of thing? Uh, there's a bunch of different ways. Um, we don't bring the website down normally uh, for, for pushes. It depends on the size of the push and the complexity. Mm-hmm. But like day-to-day pushes, we probably push... I'm going to guess a minimum of once a day, uh, just right. little bug fixes and stuff like that. Um, and those happen, generally happen, you know, in the middle of the day, nobody notices, no big deal. Uh, the, the outages these days are almost completely dependent on database activity that we need to, you know, like database fixes and stuff like that. Um, and the ways that we're getting around that these days uh, is using a, me- another, a different method of partitioning called vertical partitioning. Where, uh, like, for instance, I think our comment digs table, like, keeps track of, like, who's dug a comment up or down has, like, 15 billion records in it. Oh, and, God. <laughs> yeah, and if you were to, like, alter that table, it would take, like, I don't you probably couldn't even alter it. Like, it, it would probably crash MySQL. But if you were, it would probably take a week to alter it. So, instead, we create another table. Like, so we have, like, comments, and then, like, like we have another one called um, comments meta or something like that. Comments digs and comments digs meta. And then that has a couple extra fields that we want in it. And then we'll say, okay, we're about to push the code, and uh, when we push the code, the first the first common ID that was added to that table was, you know, 15 billion and one. So that means I need to start at 15 billion and work my way back and backfill that table. Wow. So we do, we do some of that um, live as well. And uh, for next push that we're going to be doing, we're using actually a migration table that will tell us how far along each record is and which tables we've actually migrated and stuff like that. And then we're going to use this package called Gearman, uh, which is a queuing system that, we, that we've had in production for a while. And we're basically turning our web servers into a giant botnet to, like, backfill all of those partitions quickly. Gee whiz. Sound, I mean, that kind of, that amount of data, I mean, it must create huge problems, um, you know, even adding a new piece of functionality or whatever to the site to, to actually code it in a way that isn't going to have this momentous impact on the database. It must always be something constantly in your mind, I'm guessing. 
Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, like, a, actually a really funny story that I think highlights that perfectly is uh, we have these little green badges that are on the dig button, and uh, they indicate that a friend of yours has dug that oh, yeah. story. And uh, when you hover over it, it'll tell you, like, the last four friends to dig it or something. So that's um, a pretty gnarly query against a very big table, and we've actually had to, uh, what I would call, dial it down a bit. So now it only shows up on stories that are 48 hours old, and it won't show up if there's more than, like, 500 digs or something. Okay. I don't know. So, so the feature is still fairly useful, but it's not, like, I mean, before it was like if someone went to top in 365, like it was basically crashing our servers. Um, <laughs> so we've been we've been rewriting that, and uh, uh, we basically the way that we're rewriting it is is if you dig something, we take that dig and we drop it into each of your followers' buckets. Like so, we make a bucket for each story for each person, yeah. uh, and then anytime one of their friends digs it, we drop that dig into their bucket. Well, the problem is is that there's like Kevin Rose is followed by forty thousand people, so every time he digs something, I need to drop forty thousand things into forty thousand different buckets. <laughs> and um, we we did the math, and basically, just to get that feature up and running, like in a in a fast, like sane manner that will scale, uh, so we can bring it back online in full capacity, like you know everybody can use use it all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need one point. Two five terabytes of storage, uh, and uh, we need to be able to sustain three thousand writes a second in order to keep that just that that small feature online. So I mean that 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 really kind of puts things in context that you know a, a, a relatively small feature that I don't know Kevin or, or Daniel or whoever comes up with has massive ramifications from your point of view. Yeah, yeah, it's this is something that has kind of been. Um, something that you know, I always talk about. It's even back when I was doing consulting. You know, I'd have I'd have clients come to me, and now I have Daniel and Kevin come to me, and they're like, "Check out our awesome design." I'm like, "The design's awesome, except for this little like twenty by eighty pixel area right here. That's that's going to cost you know a hundred thousand dollars in servers and another you know five hundred man hours." And they're like, <laughs> "But it's you know, and designers are like they're always like they think of of sizes and shapes, right? So they're like, but it's only you know, Daniel always like jokes around. He's like, "I can make it purple if that'll make it easier for you." You know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> like that doesn't make it easier. <laughs> well, I mean, we're going to get you, you and Daniel, back on the show soon. Um, actually, to talk, well, you know, this obviously to talk about, um, you know, this whole designer developer relationships so that should be entertaining. So you can you can lay some, you know, some minds for him now, and you know, get your side <laughs> in first before before he can defend himself. <laughs> sounds like sounds like a plan. So, I mean, are you now at the point where you've got an architecture that's kind of infinitely scalable, or are you going to have to go back to the drawing board if Dig just goes even more, you know, you know, off the scale than it already is? Uh, yeah, we're actually at the drawing board right now. Uh, oh. Ron, yeah, Ron and myself and a couple of the other senior uh, peeps about probably about eight, eight or ten months ago started putting together, uh, we knew that we were going to be hitting serious limitations, um, especially as we grow internationally. Like there's, you know, there's a problem with latency for you guys over there across the pond hitting the West Coast and and uh, other things like that. So we want to be in multiple data centers. We want to be actively serving traffic from multiple data centers. So we're, uh, we started off, well, we need to horizontally partition. That's the big thing. We need to make sure that we can do that. We need to live in two different data centers. We need to be able to survive one data center disappearing. So mm. we spent, you know, like basically a week in front of the whiteboard, and uh, we created this thing called uh, what we call IDDB, uh, which is kind of an elastic storage engine uh, built on top of MySQL and MemcacheDB uh, that we're going to be putting the, the very first bits and pieces into production uh, probably in about a month or so. Okay. And then, and aggressively uh, moving stuff, um, and really okay. like the whole partitioning thing, like that's not a difficult thing to figure out. The difficult things are like <clears throat> um, basically spanning multiple data centers, and then also, you know, okay, well, I have a couple hundred gigabytes of data, um, and now I need to spray that across, you know, a couple dozen different servers mm. um, without bringing the site down. So it's mm. like we have a million couple million, three million, four, I don't know, three or four million users. So 
I have to take all of their records and then all of their auxiliary records, right? So there's like your user record and then there's also a bunch of craft that's related to that. So I need to take all of that and migrate it to different partitions. But I need to do that while the site's still up and running. And I need to do that without breaking the site for you. So I mean, that's yeah. the more complex problem at this yeah. point. I mean, you talk about spreading across you know, multiple data centers, and if one of those goes down, the site needs to carry on, etc. Uh, obviously, mm -hmm. you're not at that point yet. So how are you currently handling redundancy? You know, how, how do you make sure that the site stays up at the minute? Um, right now, our, I think our only, in fact, I'm positive, our only single point of failure at this point is our actual data center. Okay. So if the data center falls off the planet, then we've got problems. But we've got a, the general architecture is we have a couple load balancers out front, and those those two have what they call a heartbeat between them. Mm -hmm. And if one of them falls off, the other one instantly takes over traffic for it. Okay. Um, and then that balances traffic across, I couldn't even tell you, dozens and dozens of web servers. Um and of course, you know the load balancer does health checks on those. So if any one of those starts screwing up, it it'll drop it out of the pool. Right. And then uh, behind that, we have I think four. I guess our masters are technically single points of failure, um, but we have multiple masters as well. Um, and then we have dozens of read slaves hanging off of them. And uh, I think right now it takes us maybe ten minutes to bring a new master into production if one fails. So. And then we have to store our files. We use a thing called MogileFS, uh, which is a distributed web dev storage engine of sorts. Uh, and uh, we can lose multiple nodes on that and not have any problems with that as well. Okay. So, I mean, it, it, yeah, at the moment it's a physical problem that you've got that, you know, if your data center, you know, gets hit by an earthquake or whatever, you're in problems. Please tell me it's not in San Francisco. It's not in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're not actually going to say where it is. <laughs> no, I can I can say we have one on the west coast and we have one on the east coast. Oh, well, there you go. That, yeah. That's at least something. Um, <laughs> I mean, so far we've we've concentrated very much, haven't we, on on scaling technology. But there's a kind of another side to this as well, you know, where you get something like Dig that has grown incredibly rapidly over a very short length of time, and that's kind of scaling the team behind it, you know. I, I mean, I don't know how many people were, from the development side were working on Dig when you joined, but there would certainly be a heck of a lot more now. And I'm quite interested in, in how you went about growing the team, you know, how, how you deal with that kind of rapid growth and making sure that everybody knows what they're working on and not overwriting each other's work and all, of, you know, all the complexity that goes alongside that. How have you dealt with that? Sure. Um, so just a little, I guess, to put things into context a bit, uh, when I was hired, actually, we, we had both Kurt Williams and I um, were both hired at the, on the same day um, and were respectively employees 18, 19, and uh, developers. I think we were, there's, yeah, we're, there were seven of us. Um, okay. So uh, now we're at uh, the low 20s as far as developers and we're in the mid 80s as far as total employees, and that's okay. been in a year and nine months. Um, so the, as far as the scaling the teams go, I mean, some of the, the building blocks were obviously well in place by the time I got here, like, uh, you know, source repository, um, you know, stuff like that. Uh, mm -hmm. but I think that the, the crucial things that we've done since we've, um, since, since I've come on board that, that were, we had, we had some coding standards that were out there, but they, they weren't really in force. Um, and then we had, uh, we didn't really have like a, any kind of like frameworks in place. Um, I think, I think, you know, one of the problems, you know, when Jay, our CEO would always ask, you know, like, where do we find more, more really senior talented, talented developers? And I told Jay, I was like, that's, that's not the right question. The right question is how, how do we get the code and how do we get the technology into a position where we don't have to hire really senior people? Yeah. Um, so I think the keys to that is, um, we do do, uh, we have pretty strict coding standards. Um, we enforce those rigorously through continuous integration environment and code code reviews. Every every piece of code that gets pushed to production has to be reviewed. Okay. Um, and that's literally just you know four or five coders sitting in a room going line by line through change sets and stuff like that. And uh, you know that sounds really time consuming, but 
without question, we've in every code review I've sat in on, we found at least one showstopper bug, wow. like at least. So um, those have been crucial, I think, uh, to into you know getting things put together. Um, the other thing that we did as we as we grew um, is we broke the team up into smaller teams. Mm-hmm. So we have a development team of you know twenty twenty five developers, but that's broken up into teams of between three and five developers. Mm. Uh, this really helps a couple areas. One, it enforces code ownership. So, you know, the, everybody has this problem where it's like, I code this and then I go and work on something completely different. And then six months later, I have to come back to the first thing I was coding on. And I've, I've forgotten, like, I don't remember any of that. Um, whereas and if you're always working kind of in the same area of the sites, it, you know, not only, not only, do you remember a lot more? You're a lot more familiar with that, but also you feel a little bit more sense of ownership of it. You're not just yeah. like this fired gun that's coming in and like plow through this feature and then move on to something else. It's like you have your own territory that you need to, you know, that you need to keep track of and you need it to be really nice and, and whatnot. Um, so we did that and then we have a bunch of, a, a bunch of core frameworks that, that we built. Um, we have a small application framework. We have an Ajax framework, um, and now we have this data access layer that, that we've been building up called IDDB. So I think those are pretty crucial too. One of the, you know, it's, it's difficult to find coders that uh, are intimately aware with, with about memcache and race conditions that exist in memcache. And, mm. um, you know, we have to be very selective about what, what fields we add indexes on and stuff in, in, in MySQL. Uh, and we also have to be very selective about how we store that and, and, uh, Normalization flies totally out the window if you're a DBA guy. So a lot of concepts that that um, you know they're not bad developers by any means. They're they're perfectly good. You know they do great AJAX work. They do great application level PHP work. But if you don't have frameworks in place for them to you know not have to worry about the super super complex stuff, yeah. uh, you know it it's going to be really difficult to hire and it's going to be really difficult to like you know get a get a lot of stuff running in parallel and stuff. Mm, wow. So, yeah, and then we've also one of the other things that we've adopted is the, the agile Scrum. Uh, so doing sprints and you know being, and we're running those in parallel now across all of the teams. So right now we have four major projects going on right now. Okay. So. So I mean, you, you talked about a sense of ownership there, and that that you know your developers are split down and have responsibilities in certain areas. You know. Does that not get boring for the developer having to work on the you know the same piece of code in effect or the same set of code for prolonged periods of time, or do you rotate people occasionally? Um, we don't currently rotate people. I mean, the team the team structure has been in place for probably about four or five months now, oh, okay. and um, you know they get most of the work that they get is pretty meaty. You know, like and we're moving away major projects like. You know, Facebook Connect. So your interface, like the tools and integration team, they do. Fa- they're doing Facebook Connect now, and then you know, after this, they'll maybe work on a new version of the API or something. So, okay. it's right now it's wide swaths of, of the site. So we have site apps, which does like the, all the different applications on the site, and we have tools and integration, which is like any of the external projection of Dig, and then we have uh, what we call core apps which is like search and R&D stuff, like recommendation engine and whatnot. And then we have core infrastructure. So we broad generally, enough to be interesting from the sounds of it. Yeah, it's, it's pretty pretty broad teams. And then also um, when, we assign, when we put people on those teams, it's like even if, even if someone has like an amazing core infrastructure background, but they say, look, you know, like, like we actually have one of our UI guys used to be, really heavy into core infrastructure stuff when he worked at Quest, like managed massive data warehouses. And he's like, that's not what, that's not what gets me up in the morning anymore. JavaScript UI interfaces are. So, so we, you know, we try to put people on the teams where, you know, where their passions lie. And and that's kind of another thing that, that I think people need to recognize is that um, not all developers are driven by or interested in the same things. Mm. And, um, like, we have some job, like, some, what I would call, like, UI front-end developers that, like, they could care less about PHP. But mm. we have PHP developers that could care less about JavaScript. <laughs> yeah. So I, th- I think recognizing strengths and weaknesses and capitalizing on those is pretty important, too. Mm. Okay. One last question, then, to finish off. 
um, which is a kind of, you know, the kind of things that you've been talking about, you know, they're fascinating to hear the kind of challenges that are faced by an organisation the size of DIG with the level of traffic you have. But obviously a lot of the people listening to this podcast you know, aren't at that stage, you know, they're not working on, on massive projects like that. So so I'm really interested um, in what advice you'd have maybe for somebody that's just beginning to suffer from scalability problems. So, you know, they can kind of feel that it's coming and that it's something that they need to be paying attention to, but it's not, you know, on the enormous scale that you guys deal with. What what things can they do right now to prevent problems further down the line? Um, I think uh, the easiest things you can do is that uh, you need to rethink the LAMP acronym because uh, what that stack is is actually no longer really that stack. I would actually I would take Linux and I would take Apache out of that stack, and uh, it doesn't matter as long as you're running on a Unix. And um, and then as far as Apache goes. There's some Lighty and Nginx are much better for for getting a lot more money out of your box as far as scalability goes. Mm-hmm. But the two areas that I think people that are they they sound hard, but really, really, really aren't. They're really easy that people should be doing almost immediately. One of them is uh, installing and using Memcache, um, and the second one is installing and using a queuing system of some sort. Okay. Um, and I think. Like for instance, I, I recently went through this with with a little side project called called Please Dress Me that AJ and Gary Vaynerchuk and I did. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. And we uh, had a very small virtual server at at Media Temple that survived uh, pretty crushing blows from TechCrunch, Dig, Boing Boing, uh, with almost no load. And that was because beforehand, like Memcache is just so second nature to me at this point. Yeah. I was like, oh well, I'm just going to catch everything in Memcache and. It was literally just this RAM spewing machine, you know. Like it, it didn't, it didn't actually hit the database. Actually, my sysadmin from Media Temple called me, and he was like, um, "Something's really weird. Your MySQL server is only doing like one query a second, and you're doing like, you know, 500 requests a second from Boing Boing and I was like, because it's all cached." <laughs> so yeah, Memcache is probably the. I mean, it's the. It takes literally 10 minutes to install, and another probably hour or two to implement. So right. wow. That sounds excellent. That's really good advice. Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show. And um, I can't wait to get you and Daniel fighting with one another um, in the not-too-distant future. I'm, I'm uh, hoping to, to get a good, violent argument about designers and developers between you just to kind of, you know, just because I can, really. I was, I was, I was a little disappointed when you guys sat down with, at Future Web, uh, Web Design. You were far too nice to one another compared to the evening before when you'd had a bit to drink and you were sitting, <laughs> sitting talking in the restaurant. That was, that's, that's the kind of conversation that I want, that real vicious conversation. <laughs> All right. I'll make sure that Daniel and I get liquored up before we yeah, come on that. That's the answer. Okay. Thank you so much, Joe. That was some really good advice, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Bob. Bye. So, listener, the listener contribution section, which, let's face it, normally should be called listener questions mm. when you send in questions for me and Marcus, but no more. <laughs> I will not have it. You always take, take, take. That's the trouble with our audience. I like questions. Yeah, I know. So do I, really. But I thought we'd do something different for this week. So, um, I thought we'd have a change. So, instead of having questions this week, I've asked a question. And I've asked a question to the forum and the Boag World site and via Twitter and various other exciting means. And I've asked for people to vote for their favourite web design application. Just so it'd be interesting. See Must what people came up Christmas. Yes, it's shopping time. <laughs> time. Because that's what you really want for Christmas, a web design application. No, I didn't mean it like that. Christmas is the time when you start saying, and what were the top five things this year? Yeah, this yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm going to leave. I'm actually going to leave this this voting thing going. So if you fancy joining in this and having your say, or just to see the other <coughs> ones because there's a lot more than five, so there's some really good recommendations. Then check out check out the show notes at the previously mentioned address, <laughs> um, and you can link through to that. Um, so the response, I was really surprised because I only shoved it on Twitter and kind of mentioned it a few places, but we had a really good response. And there's a complete list of my suggestions over on user voice, which we've mentioned before on the show, and it's a useful little tool for this kind of thing. Have a top five. I'm going to do them in reverse order to build the suspense. It's not really 
going to work, is it? No. Coming in at number five um, is uh, TextMate. TextMate's a powerful text editor for the Mac with an extensive plugin architecture. Um, so from highlighting code to near endless language, uh, in near endless languages to support for numerous version control systems, TextMate is probably the most powerful text editor out there, I'm guessing. So um, if you're a Mac user, definitely check that one out. That came in at number five. At number four is Coda. So Coda is a bit similar to TextMate in the fact that it's both for coding HTML, but Coda provides a one window development environment for the Mac. So it includes not just a text editor, but FTP, browser preview, and even a terminal window. Not that I really understand terminal. What's a terminal window? Uh, like a DOS prompt. Oh, okay. Um, so, yes. It's it's a, for serious people. It's serious people, not people like me. I do, yeah. do, I do do stuff in terminal, but I don't really understand it. I just have to copy you it out. Open it up and just go like that with no, your no, fingers. No, I, I just copy and paste from things on the internet. Ah, <laughs> oh, right, okay. Um, so it's a beautifully designed app, um, and it uh, uh, will appeal to more visual web designers. It's simple, easy, and elegant to use, unlike TextMate that seems to have a massive... Well, there's a book you can buy to learn TextMate, which puts me off instantly. But I accept, before you start writing in and saying how good TextMate is, I know it's good, I'm just lazy and can't be bothered to lo- learn it, while Coder I just picked up and it worked. So there we go. Okay, coming in at number three is very boringly Adobe Photoshop, but kind of unsurprising, really. So uh, for those three people that don't know, Adobe Photoshop is a professional image editing and graphics creation software from Adobe. Can you tell? I just lifted that from the Adobe website. (laughs) So it provides a large library of effects, filters, and layers. um, And it's really the granddaddy of of such web app, of such kind of graphics applications. And many, like myself, use it more out of habit than anything else. It's far Um, more fun than those boring text editor things you've just been talking about. It is, but... It, but you can put photographs in and then apply can. filters and it goes, ooh, and it looks like a painting. I know. There you <laughs> go. But there were some other suggestions um, for kind of equivalent applications that you might want to take a look at too, although they didn't vote, rate as highly as Photoshop. And that's obviously things like Fireworks and Illustrator, but also something called Inkscape, which I haven't come across before, but is an um, a open source um, vector package, a bit like Illustrator. So you okay. might want to check that out. And there's obviously GIMP, but nobody mentioned that because it has a silly name. Yes. So, coming in at number two is the Web Developer Toolbar. So, the Web Developer Toolbar is a Firefox add-on that provides a variety of web development tools. You can disable JavaScript and CSS, visually highlight elements, manage cookies, and oh, so much more. Um, there were less. Pre- there was a less popular alternative, which was the Internet Explorer Developer Toolbar. Um, but the Web Developer Toolbar for Safari absolutely rocks. And if you haven't used it before, then do so. Coming in at number one, drum roll please, is Firebug. So that's very exciting. Firebug is a Firefox add-on as well, but it provides a wealth of development tools at your fingertips while you browse. That's off of their site as well. Yeah, you can tell. I can tell. I've switched um, off again. Yeah. So you can edit, debug, and monitor CSS, HTML, and JavaScript live on any page. Um, there was a less popular version um, for Safari called uh, Web Inspector. So that's just five out of a massive list. So check those out. So I thought that was quite interesting. Mm. Get people to answer the question rather than me for a change. If you disagree with uh, the listeners' top five or want to see the other entries, then head over to User Voice. Um, and the link is in the show notes. So my second user contribution for this week comes from the forum. And it was a question that was asked by Richard about sending bulk email. And he writes... Spam, you mean? No, no, <laughs> legitimate bulk. You could say legitimate email. Yes. Stop it. Okay. So Richard writes, I need to send out um, bulk emails to approximately 20,000... No, sorry, 200,000 registered opt-in users... On a monthly basis. So that's a big old site, 200,000. Right, uh, okay. What are you going, right, yeah, you don't I'm, believe him, do you? I'm just, uh, I, I, it amuses me when you sign up for certain things, the way they write the opt-in yeah. or opt-out question. Tick this box <laughs> if you don't, but do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Something really back to front. Yeah, yeah. Like, Hang on a minute. Now, you have to go through it in your mind. It's like, ah, oh, so I don't tick it. And then you're not sure. Yeah. Well, the really good ones are double opt-in, which mm-hmm. are the ones where... If you say, yes, I want it, then they send you an email and say, click on this link if you do want to get it. 
Yeah. That's, they're good. But, you know. Okay. We're not we're not judging Richard, mine. I'm sure he's a great person and there's legitimate reasons for doing this. <laughs> Absolutely. Go for it, Richard. Um, so he asked whether anybody has any recommendations for outsourced um, bulk email providers. Um, so basically, this is what the Boag World community has to say. Some really good feedback. Jamie was the first of a number of people to recommend Campaign Monitor. And I think we've mentioned Campaign Monitor before on the show. And judging by the feedback from the forum, they provide an excellent service, but sound like they're a little bit expensive when compared to the others. So just bear that in mind, but definitely check them out. As well as recommending Campaign Monitor, Nick also mentioned something called Silver Plop. Pop. Silver Plop. (laughs) <laughs> I definitely wouldn't use a service called Silver Plop. No. Silver Pop, which he describes as more of an enterprise affair, whatever that means. Apparently, it's not as polished as Campaign Monitor, but considerably more powerful. So he probably means enterprise because it's got lots of options and stuff. Enterprise Fit- usually means expensive. Yeah, but it's so, tiny, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay. Um, so Phil recommended two more. He mentioned something called um, MailChimp and Mad Mini. I, I don't like these silly titles that people come up with product. It's like there's a competitor to get sign-off called Black Pudding. <laughs> I think it's Black Pudding. I might have got that right. Something Pudding. Pudding pro- pro- Project Pudding. Project Pudding. Yeah. I don't know if that's right either. But there's definitely puddings involved. Oh, okay. And that just seems wrong to me. Yeah, well, there's, the argument is that you remember it. Although you obviously don't. No. <laughs> it was totally <laughs> undermined. I remember the pudding bit. Um, so anyway, um, Chimpmel and um, Mad Mini. Um, he hasn't used either of them personally, but the price apparently looks good, and he says the user interface appears polished from what he saw. Doug doesn't recommend a specific service, but does recommend to Richard a post on the Creative Tips, which provides a comprehensive review of Campaign Monitor, um, MailChimp, a, a Weber, and Constant Contact. So um, I thought it was quite good. Good, that article. I had a little look at it. It looks quite useful. Okay. So if you've got any suggestions for Richard or would like to share your experiences of using bulk email services, then you can contribute to the thread. And there's a link in the show notes to that. Um, and so, yeah, start using, the, start using the forum if you haven't already. There's some really good advice comes back. And I think I'm going to do this a little bit more because it saves me thinking for myself. <laughs> yeah, fair point. Yeah. So there we go. That sums up today's show. Joke? No, no joke. This That's crap. So what's your contribution today's show been then? None at all. I've sat here. No, you did right at the beginning in the introduction. You said useful things then. Did I? Yes, about your experiences card sorting. Oh, yes. So see, see, I'm not completely useless. Okay. I'm not just a pretty face. No. <laughs> so let's... Uh, it's not my fault I haven't got any jokes. Well, it is. I could look them up, but I much prefer people to send them to I'm going to make people suffer then. You're going to tell a joke. No, no, I'm not going to tell a joke. I'm going to t- talk about an excellent excellent book that's about to be released called the website owner's manual oh stop it and so i'm going to do an advert now in preference to your jokes so you're going to get hate mail to to marcus at people have sent me jokes i just don't like any of them all picky send me good ones like and you know the kind of joke I you like, like tommy I cooper like, jokes basically i like what joke tommy cooper jokes i do like those but i mean I'm, I've, I've had a couple of longer ones recently but my favorite one recently was definitely uh, you know you, the magic tractor one Yes, I that like was that. good. That was a good joke. Went down the road, turned into a field. Yes. Sorry. I told the joke again. See, I did tell a joke. That doesn't really count. And no. you interrupted my advert for, for website. Like, I don't want to listen I'm to begin- it. I'm getting quite excited about it, actually. I'm going to keep talking. I only no, have a blah, chapter blah, blah, and a bit blah. left to go. That's like... Why don't you do the advert when you've done that chapter and a bit? Oh, sod off. Because it'll still be about three months before the book's released. I'm hoping it'll be March. Anyway, um, oh, I wanted to put a little plea out. Do you remember last year we did our Christmas raising money thing? I don't know whether we're going to do it this year. I think we probably will. Yeah. We asked people to contribute money, didn't we? Yeah, and I can't remember why, who, where. Well, the idea was that that it'd be nice, you know, that basically we don't ask people to pay for the show. um, And that if they found it useful, that they could donate a little bit of money via my personal PayPal account, which was sounded a bit dodgy. But honestly, I did pass the money on. Um, <laughs> honestly, you did? Really? <laughs> to a, to a, I had to get a receipt or something. Yeah. Um, to a charity, of which is a, a school out in India, do you remember? Like I a do. school stroke yeah, orphanage in yes. India. Well, do you know, they're, they're over at the moment in the UK, the people that run the place. And I, I was talking to them about 
um, their very dodgy internet connection because they're right, right out in the sticks. Mm. And it occurred to me that maybe um, the answer is for them to use a mobile phone network because they have, believe it or not, a good mobile phone even though they don't have good landlines. But obviously in the UK there are things like 3G net. Well, not necessarily even 3G, but you know you can get modems that connect to the mm. to the whatever the yep. mobile phone network but I don't know anything about India and how that works so if there's anybody by any chance listening to this show from India can you get in touch with me at paul at com because I want to pick your brain about mobile phone networks out there hmm. um, okay. that'd be good That's there, there's no justification for discussing that really but you'd started so you, you ought to finish I ought to finish so there we go thank you very much for listening to this week's show we apologise once again for the echo do not write in we don't care <laughs> Thank you very much for listening and talk to you again next week. Goodbye. Bye. Hello, world of Boaz. It's like being on David Letterman. Boag world. Boag world.